The Bible reading for today is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 47. It can be found on page 1091 of the Blue Church Bibles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Andrew, for reading it with such conviction. And what a, what a wonderful passage of Scripture that is, a very significant passage of Scripture for the church. Uh, so let us, uh, let us um, uh, think about that passage for a little while and ask God to be at work amongst us. Our Father, please, please be with us by your Spirit now as we, as we look at your Word. And would you fill us with conviction and boldness and great love for you and for each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was talking with a family member a couple of weeks ago at a dinner for the extended family. The kids had all had a swim. 
Uh, I'd been on water supervision duty for two hours. My skin was all, you know, it was all sort of wrinkly. And, and uh, now it was time to eat and uh, to have some adult conversation at last. And the family member I was chatting with uh, was not a Christian, but she has extended family of her own, some of whom have Christian faith. And we got onto the topic of her spirituality. Uh, she's been doing yoga for some years, and she said to me, there's no doubt that the majority of people in my yoga group, um, that one of the main reasons that they come along is a deep interest in spiritual connection, in the spiritual side of human life. They're not just here for the physical exercise. And so we found ourselves agreeing on, uh, on the importance of spirituality and on the whole idea that atheism or the non-existence of spirituality is hard to reckon with. Don't you find that it's often a relief to find some level of agreement with people on spiritual matters? Much easier to cope with than argumentation, don't you think? Uh, Our pluralistic, relativistic Western society makes it possible to discuss views on spiritual matters as long as we don't start making exclusive claims about what's true or or what's not true. That is, we can chat as long as we don't think that ours is the only view that's true. That's breaking a huge social convention. And so what happens to us very often is we become tentative in our conversations and we become private in our views. Do our friends even know what we believe? Of course, they may not be that fussed, actually, with what we believe because in our society, religion has long been seen as a private affair it's not the same. It's not the case everywhere in the world, but it very much is here. Uh, we, you know, we each have our different beliefs about the big things in life, but it's generally better to keep those beliefs to yourself. And sometimes Christians have been caught up in this view too. Well, what do you think? How much is our spirituality private, and how much is it for the telling? And if it's for the telling. How will I do it? Because I'm going to need to be bold if I'm going to break these social conventions. So we've just read about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the first Christian Pentecost. What do you think is happening there? It may have sounded to you like a curious miracle followed by a fairly punchy sermon which obviously had a big impact Maybe, you know, this is a little bit like an early version of a Billy Graham crusade. It turns out Peter has a great gift for public speaking and things go really well for the early church, perhaps even better than anyone had expected. You know, is this a good news story or is it something more? Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think this is nothing less than the the birthing of a new age in history. More significant than the Renaissance more significant than the Enlightenment on the course of human history. I think this is more than a miracle. It's more than just a wow spiritual event. It's the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit. It's the birth of the church itself. On this day, not as the strategy of some church planting organization, but as the long promised act of God himself. So there are basically three parts of this passage. We'll work through them in sequence. There's an outline with these points on them. Uh, First is the pouring out of the Spirit. Second, the preaching of the Word. And third, the birthing of the church. And we'll finish with some implications. First, the pouring 
of the Spirit. These disciples, we've been uh, looking at them a little bit over the last couple of weeks, including the 12 apostles. So there's a bigger group of 120 and 12 specified apostles. They've been waiting 10 days. Jesus had instructed them to stay in Jerusalem while they wait. And they've been joining together constantly in prayer. As we saw last week, they appointed Matthias as a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Pentecost is the name of a Christian festival today, but it's also a Jewish festival prescribed long ago in the Old Testament. It was one of the three big pilgrimage festivals that people would come to Jerusalem for. And the other name for this festival is, does anyone know? Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, That is, it always came seven weeks after Pentecost, after the Passover, I should say, and that's the weekend on which uh, Jesus' passion occurred, seven weeks after the Passover. But also it came 50 days, you know, seven sevens, uh, and Pentecost means 50. So it's, it's a kind of a referencing festival. It references um, Passover. And the Feast of Weeks, you know what kind of festival it was? It was a, a harvest festival. That's interesting, isn't it? It was the the first fruits in spring. And it was at this harvest festival that Israel's God began a new kind of harvest. A harvest of people. All the disciples are together in one house at the the time. Possibly the upper room, we don't know. And uh, and they've just been waiting for for this 10-day period. And without warning, there is a sudden furious sound you can just imagine them all just sort of coming alive what is that and uh, it's the sound of a violent windstorm but the text seems to suggest that nothing's actually blowing it's not like doors are slamming and and everything's breaking everywhere it's just the sound of a roaring storm during the recent bushfires one of the comments that's been made over and over about the fires is that they don't just sound like the gentle crackling of a couple of small logs in a lounge room fireplace They sound like the roar of a freight train, a deafening sound. There is immense power in those fires as they approach. And it's that kind of sound they're hearing, the approach of fire. And it's one of those details these disciples never forget. So, of course, in addition to the sound of the wind, there's the appearance of fire or what looks like fire. Before their eyes, there's this flames darting around the room i mean can you imagine uh the experience for them these tongues fire-like tongues dividing and spread across the room i would have thought it would have been quite terrifying to see flame all of a sudden in the room and each of them has uh this little tongue like fire i don't know how big it was could have been big could have been little just resting on the top of their heads and obviously their hair isn't burning because it's not physical combustion Reminds me a little of the not burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament. God appears to Moses as fire and tells him, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Now here it's just as much an encounter with God. But it's not a person talking to God in the flames, it's the flames. They've come to the person. And God, the presence of God is resting on the person, on on these people, empowering them to speak about God to others. 
And that's what verse 4 tells us. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is, this is a momentous event, God speaking through his disciples. So notice that what the Spirit does here is enable speaking. Their speaking role is highlighted by their ability here to speak in other languages. This is a miracle of speaking. Luke then tells us that among all the visitors to Jerusalem for this festival of weeks or the Pentecost were God-fearing Jews from a whole host of nations in the nearby world, near and far. Maybe these people, their ancestors had grown up in Israel, but at some point they have spread out. This is the diaspora, Jews who have grown up in foreign lands uh, and some foreigners who have become Jews, it said, with and they've got new native languages now because they've grown up there, other, languages other than Hebrew or Aramaic. And they hear this sound, and they come together in bewilderment uh, because as they get nearer, they realize that they're all hearing their own native languages being spoken in Jerusalem. It's interesting, though, that this is not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking. These Foreigners are testifying to the fact that they've come from very different places, but each of them is hearing the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own native tongue. Almost as if this message belongs back home. And verse 7, they are utterly amazed and they ask, what does this mean? It's a good question, don't you think? Well, just note before we move on that these are earthly languages. There, is, there are other references later in the New Testament, for example, 1 Corinthians, to speaking in tongues. And that seems to be different from this. No less a work of the Spirit. Um, we're not really going to speak about that any more than that now. But just to say this is possibly different. What's happening here is a unique event in Acts chapter 2, where tongues like fire are pointing to the disciples' own tongues that are now effectively on fire, with praise for God. One other quick observation. This harks our mind back perhaps to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In that story, God's judgment comes down on the people because they've tried to make a name for themselves by cooperating to build a tower to the heavens. And God says, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't make a name for yourself. And his judgment takes the form of language confusion. He sends a whole lot of languages amongst them and they can't finish the job. Here is a bit different. He doesn't sort of erase all those languages, but he, it's like he redeems them. The multilingual phenomenon here is not judgment, it's actually redemption. And it's now a sending of the gospel to many places. Point two, the preaching of the word. There are some cynics in the crowd and they dismiss the whole thing as collective drunkenness. I'm sure it would have sounded rowdy. And presumably the disciples have spilled out of the house by now because there's a lot of people milled as we see later. And this crowd has gathered from lands near and far. And Peter stands up, presumably somewhere he can be seen, and he raises his voice and he delivers the first ever apostolic sermon. It's a second part of this miracle of speaking. Fellow Jews, listen carefully. 
They're not drunk. It's too early in the day for that. There is a much better explanation. And since he's addressing Jews, he preaches on three passages from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And his sermon is kind of structured around those three passages. First is the prophet Joel. What you see here, fellow Jews, is what God promised. Hundreds of years earlier, through his spokesperson, Joel. So God has certainly spoken through people prior to this event. That's not new. The prophets spoke by God's spirit. But what God said through Joel was that, verse 17, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just the prophets. That is to say, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, verse 21, they can now be saved and receive the spirit. Not just the prophets, and amazingly, not just the Jews. The apostles haven't worked that out yet. Because their idea of the Spirit is that it was connected to Israel. But no, no, here now everyone can be saved and they will receive the Holy Spirit. And according to Joel, what we'll now hear about is extraordinary phenomena like prophecy, dreams, visions and wonders happening to all kinds of people. Now each of these gifts may not be given to every single individual person. I don't think that's what it's saying. What it's saying I think is that there will be regular folk who will know of the will of God and will encounter him in extraordinary ways and will speak of the will of God. Last week, you may recall, I, uh, I referred to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we are reminded that the Spirit renews the Christian's mind, enabling each of us to know the will of God and therefore to be able to make godly decisions the indwelling of god's spirit in the individual believer not just in their representatives you know the prophets or the kings this is a genuinely new thing and yet it's even more than just a new thing it's a new age peter calls this the last days the age between the first coming of the christ and the second coming of the christ there's only one thing left to happen now that we're in these last days sounds a bit apocalyptic yeah one more thing to be revealed by god and that is the great and glorious day of the lord and we're in that that last little bit of history now as we know it before the day of the lord that is the day of judgment the day of the general resurrection the day of the revelation of God's eternal life and the names of those written in the book of life. Of course, our problem here in Mount Barker in 2020, our problem is that these, you know, the age of the Spirit, it just, it just feels like life as we know it, doesn't it? It's just everyday life. What's the big deal about this age of the Spirit? Well, the big deal is that God has inaugurated the final section of history. He has queued the codes for launch and hit enter. And now there's this process that, uh, that, that follows before that launch actually happens. The Spirit is now among the people and will work through the proclamation of the Word of God about Christ to turn the hearts of people back to God. This is what is happening in this age. The age of the Spirit is the age of the harvest. 
But we're not the only ones tempted to say, what's the big deal? There is a very uncomfortable matter that has to be raised with these people. That is what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. There's a big problem. God showed you who he was, who this, who this man Jesus was, through his miracles, and you saw them, says Peter. He was handed over to you, and you put him to death. You notice, you notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and wicked people put him to death. Shame on them. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. There is no pointing the blame elsewhere with Jesus' death. There is a collective responsibility for it. You remember the film, The Passion of the Christ, directed by, oh yeah, you know it, Mel Gibson. He didn't act in the movie except in one scene. When it came to nailing Jesus' hand to the cross, it's Mel Gibson's left hand that holds the nail as it's hammered in the filming. So the only acting credit he wanted for that was for that role, nailing Christ to the cross. There is a collective guilt for humanity for what we did to God's man. But of course, uh, God didn't leave him dead. God raised him from the dead. Peter says these words, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus? Was it that he wasn't a real man? You know, he's just, he's just such, so amazingly God power that he would just spring back to life again because he wasn't really man. Or was it that it wasn't a real death? No, not at all. Those are heresies. The reason it was impossible for death to keep him down is that it was the promise of Scripture. Last week we, we looked at a couple of Psalms that Peter quoted uh, to the other um, apostles. And we saw that very often with the Psalms, it's Jesus who fulfills them best. He, he makes the best sense of what is said. Sometimes the sense that Jesus makes is even better than the context around which it was originally written. So David might have had a circumstance and then you suddenly see this thing happening to Jesus and you say, oh, that really makes sense of what David said. This is the extraordinary nature of God's word that he can write it for this kind of fulfillment. Well, Peter makes exactly the same point again here when he's talking to the crowd. He quotes Psalm 16. The psalmist had said, among other things, he quotes a longer passage than I'll quote, but he says, because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You will not let your Holy One see decay. See, there is a promise that God will not let his Holy One see decay. And so the question is, who is the, who is the Holy One? In the, in the original context, David is referring to himself in some ways that way. And, and there is a truth to what David actually says. But then Peter says to the crowd, guys, look, David's dead. And his tomb is just there outside Jerusalem. You can go and see it. And so, awkward, uh, the Holy One did see decay. But, verse 31, seeing what was to come, David actually spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. 
that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Scripture had to be fulfilled. It's impossible for Scripture not to be fulfilled. The Lord's words never returned to him empty. And so Christ could not remain dead. He was the Holy One of God. God vindicated him, which is good news for Jesus, but terrible news for those who put him to death. God is turning fortunes around. He's bringing consequences. And then the final bit of Peter's sermon just makes matters worse. God raised Jesus. We're all witnesses of this, those of us gathered around here. That's verse 22. And God has exalted him to his right hand. That is, this man Jesus now has full divine authority. And you yourselves have seen this very day that Jesus has poured out his spirit here, the spirit promised by the Father. But worst of all, and here is where Peter quotes the third Old Testament passage, Psalm 110. God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. He's put on this man's head the title, King of my people. He is my king. We think of the message of Jesus dying at the cross as good news. But it's also terrible news. Terrifying news. God sent a savior and you killed him. Don't blame Judas. This is the miracle of the preaching of the word about Christ by, enabling of the, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, which leads to point three, the birthing of the church on the other side of the leaflet. Verse 37, people are cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? What hope is there? Sometimes we hear about cop killers and there seems to be a particular notoriety for people who kill, you know, those you know, who put their lives on the line to uphold justice and look after the vulnerable. Well, what about Messiah murderers? And this is us. If you have rejected Christ and said, no thanks, I don't need your so-called salvation, then you're right in the middle of this story. So are all of us, for that matter. You know, we sometimes think that uh, coming to God is like some kind of spiritual enlightenment. You know, we're going to improve ourselves somehow. Or, or we're going to resolve to live a better life. But actually, we, we, we hear a different message right here on the birth, uh, the birthday of the church. We see what it is to become a Christian. It is to be cut to the heart over the murder of the Messiah. And to say, along with these original Jewish hearers, brothers, what shall we do? And then to hear the good news. Verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, even from Australia. That bit was just my, my addition. 
And Peter, of course, continues to warn them and warn them. I assume this happened over an extension of time. And he pleads with them. And one of the things he says is, your generation is corrupt. So pull yourself away from that generation. Save yourself from that generation. Don't be named with them. Don't identify yourself as Gen X or Baby Boomer or Millennial or whatever it is. Come to Christ and be, be that generation. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. And then the next great miracle of the day, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized in about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Fear-mongering by Peter? No, no, no. The word of God carried by the Spirit of God, giving birth to the church of Christ. A couple more observations just before we move on to implications. First, notice that we don't... Uh, actually, just one here. Just notice that we don't hear about these converts speaking in tongues. They have the Spirit. Why don't they speak in tongues too? And the reason is that tongues is a sign of the reality. It's not the reality of the Spirit's indwelling. It's not the reality itself. Tongues will reappear in Acts. But where they do, it's gonna, he's going to come in, in moments of gospel breakthrough as the Spirit is given in Samaria in chapter 8. And then as the Spirit is given to Gentiles in chapter 10. And 19, these are very big, significant moments where the Spirit is, is again given and this, as this gospel goes out to the, to the world. And so I encourage you uh, not, not to be, oh, sorry, don't be discouraged if um, someone tells you that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Spirit, because I don't think that's true. If you repent and believe in Jesus, and that's what it is, that's what is at the heart of what it is to be baptized, then you receive the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you believe in Christ. Okay, implications. I have three. Firstly, implication one, embrace the urgent mission. Pentecost was more than a miracle. It was the beginning of the last days era, the new age of the Holy Spirit. The harvest continues and Jesus asked for us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Who will those workers be? Could it involve you and me? The apostles have died, but their teaching, the New Testament in our Bible, we still carry with us. It's still in our hands. It is still the authorized witness to the risen Christ and it's carried around by us. We hold, on, we hold out their eyewitness account. And you know, in these last days, these urgent days, the church around the world is growing, not shrinking. And the goal that we're heading towards is still glorious. Don't be discouraged. And yet the times are urgent. The time, the time left for sharing Christ is getting ever shorter. Second implication, rejoice in the global church. The global church. On the day the church was born, it immediately went to the nations. Jerusalem was full of the nations on that day. And they re returned home and they brought the message of Christ and the indwelling spirit with them. Off they went. And the church was multinational. And of course, nothing has changed. The gospel came all the way to Australia 
But it's very easy for us to think that the gospel belongs... We just find ourselves thinking this. I don't know why, but we've, it's, it's very easy to think that the gospel belongs to us more than it does to others. Maybe we'd never articulate it like that. Actually, I do think I know where it comes from. I, I think secular life encourages introspection. On the contrary, life in the spirit encourages a global vision. And a church like ours, if we look around, we have a fairly narrow breadth of racial backgrounds. It means we're, we're at risk, doesn't it, of being more shaped by the secular introspection than by the Holy Spirit's global mission and the global vision. So it is crucial for us to be praying for and interacting with Christians far and wide. Embrace and rejoice in the global church. Third implication, devote yourself to God. This brand new church was characterized by devotion. You can read about it in the last little section there, verses 42 to 47. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Read New Testament. To fellowship with each other. To eating together, quite possibly the communion. And to prayer. So, so what are we devoted to? The two simple tests of what we're devoted to are time and money. How do we spend our time and how do we spend our money? Because what the Spirit does in creating this new church is he sets us aside for God. He devotes us and our time and our money to God, to Christ and to his kingdom. So let us continue to encourage one another to be devoted to the one who has called us together as his special possession. Okay, so to finish, I think about that family member with whom I shared some agreement over spiritual matters. The conversation that I haven't yet had with her or with other members of the family is, is I guess, the next phase, isn't it? God has sent Jesus to be the Lord and Saviour and he calls on us to repent and put our faith in him, to be baptised in his name for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the message we need to be getting out. And I pray for the Spirit's miracle of healing for myself and for you. May we never shy away from saying, I believe God sent Jesus to be the Lord and Messiah. And may he work his miracle of speaking through all of us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our merciful Lord, we thank you for pouring out your spirit upon your church and giving birth to her on that day. We thank you for the, the wonder of speaking boldly that these disciples, these apostles, initially so nervous and, and confused and bewildered, uh, became bold and clear proclaimers of your grace, and the, the grace of the gospel. Father, please give us uh, each day this boldness. Give us boldness in our relationships. Give us boldness in our own personal devotions. Help us to be unequivocal about uh, who it is that we belong to. Our Father, we pray for our gathering. Keep us globally minded. Help us to have a sense of urgency. Help us to be devoted. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.